This is the Anthem CDA podcast, a church in the heart of downtown Coeur d'Alene. Join us as we seek the presence of God, learn from his word, and build lifelong connections. We hope this week's teaching brings life and encouragement. Welcome to Anthem. by you guys. Oh, sorry, Siri's talking to me here. Um, there's a couple things for me as a pastor that get me really excited and bolster my own faith, and that's when I see people in the church taking responsibility for their own faith and beginning to act on the things that the Lord, the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. And um, for one, like even Zach and Melissa stepping out and t- heeding to this call and beginning to form this group around JJO is a really awesome thing. Like, I love seeing that. Nobody told them to do that. This was something that the Lord prompted within them. And there's been a handful of things over the last couple months that have been things like that that have been really encouraging for me. One of those being uh, back in December, I don't know if you guys know that there was a handful of people that had this idea to read through the Bible in three days. 70 hours, and so just straight through 24 hours a day and cover to cover, get through the whole Bible. And so over the course of 70 hours, we had just tons of people coming in and out of the building, and it was basically, they were bringing their kids, and it was just 24 hours a day, people taking turns reading through chapters of the Bible. And we started at um, 6 a.m. on a, help me out here guys, Wednesday. I believe, and then we ended at 3.30 in the morning on a Saturday morning. And it was an amazing experience, like something I've never witnessed myself before. But what was most encouraging about it for me was watching families coming in and watching kids take turn and read. And it was just kind of, I, I mean, there was hundreds of people that came in and out over the course of 70 hours to participate in that. And One of the guys in our church, Tommy Rowland, if you guys don't know him, is an amazing videographer. And Tommy put together a real quick, like three minute video just to kind of give us a snapshot of what that whole experience was like. So before we dive into the book of Mark this morning, I kinda wanna show you guys this video and then uh, we'll talk a little bit and jump into the book of Mark. Linen and hammers of gold, each and cutting cut into the thread, into the blue and purple scarlet yarn. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Come, let us worship and. Right, Lena, they love you. 
very dark but lovely. So Daughters of Jerusalem, like the Temple of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. was such a cool experience, and in fact, um, this last week, there was another text sent out to a handful of people, and they said, hey, I'm really feeling like Saturday morning, we need to meet down at the building at 7 a.m., whoever wants to come, we're going to read through the book of Mark cover to cover before we started as a church, and so yesterday morning, there were probably 20 or 30 of us that gathered at the building and read through the book of Mark cover to cover, and there's something about this for me that has just been really encouraging in seeing people take ownership and decide for themselves they want to participate in these things, and these are not church-led initiatives, something that we're trying to push. It's been just random people saying, I feel like the Lord is asking us to do this. And I just sense in my spirit that there's like a really neat work that God is doing, that he's moving you guys in different ways to utilize the gifts that you have, to utilize these calls that he's given you in your life to begin to act on them and not sit idly by and not do anything with what it is that Jesus has given you. So this morning, as we jump into the book of Mark, I wanna give us just an overview this morning. We're basically only gonna get into verse one in the book of Mark, and we're gonna talk through this one verse this morning and set the stage for what is the next year for us as we work verse by verse through the book of Mark. If you're new to our church, historically, the way we kind of operate is we pick a book of the Bible and we teach through it from beginning to end and we don't miss a verse and we just spend talking about, time talking about the hard stuff that exists in some of those passages, trying to make sense of it the best that we can and by no means am I a professional or uh, an amazing theologian but somebody who just really loves God's word and believes that if we stand on that, that Jesus will transform and change our culture, our society, our hearts our families, our friendships. So anyway, let me pray for us and then let's jump in. Jesus, we come before you this morning. I thank you for the work that you're doing in people's lives. Lord, we all come here this morning from various backgrounds. Um, God, some of us not following Jesus, some of us are following Jesus, some of us are just kind of idle right now in our relationship with the Lord and don't even know where it's at. Uh, but Jesus, we come here this morning not to 
Um, not for platitude's sake, not because uh, we just want to check the boxes, but because we want to engage the living God. And I thank you for your word, and your word says that it is living and it's powerful. And I pray this morning, Jesus, as we begin to enter into the season, talking through the book of Mark, that you would use it to shape us and transform us, form us into your image and your likeness, Jesus, and work wonders amongst us in your name. Amen. Awesome. If you guys have your Bibles, I'm gonna encourage you through the series to bring paper Bibles if you have them. There's just something about having those in hand. Uh, but if you don't have a paper Bible, we'll have it on the screen. Open it up on your phone because I really would desire that you guys actually follow along and that outside of even what we're learning here on Sunday mornings, that you're spending time in the Word on your own Monday through Saturday. Uh, the Book of Mark is an amazing book. Again, this is gonna be a, a real intro, just broad stroke to give you guys some context with this book. But it, the book of Mark is like this book of action. And it's a book of purpose. And I'm not sure how many of you in this room will remember this uh, when this happened. Uh, some of you weren't even born when this happened. Um, but think back, if you can, to July 2nd, 1982. And a man named Larry Walters, anybody know where I'm going with this? Whoa, all right. What about if I say uh, the lawn chair Larry? Anybody remember him? Okay, lawn chair Larry was a student in San Pedro, California, 1982, July 2nd, who thought it would be fun to go down to a local army surplus store and buy 42 used weather balloons from an army surplus store. And uh, Larry Walters decided that uh, he would take those balloons, fill them all with helium, and tie them to a Sears Roebuck lawn chair that he had purchased and see if he could float into the air. And so his friends helped him, and so lawn chair Larry puts himself in this lawn chair, they strap him to it, um, they, they have these 42 weather balloons filled with helium that they tie to this lawn chair, and Larry takes with him on this trip, um, a six pack of beer, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The six pack of beer just helps you get over the stupidity of the whole moment, right? Um, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a BB gun. And Larry's whole, anybody, does anybody remember the story? Larry's whole thought was that once he started getting high enough, when he wanted to come down, he just would shoot each weather balloon one by one to bring himself back down. Well, little did Larry know that like within seconds of him, them releasing Larry into the air, Larry just took off. Within minutes, Larry was over three miles in the air, 16,000 feet, and Larry began to float into the airspace over Long Beach Airport. Um, so they shut down all the airline traffic all afternoon because Larry's floating in the sky over the airport in Long Beach. So crazy. Larry eventually comes back down like two hours later. He gets tangled up in a power line on his way down and climbs his way down the power line to the ground where he's met at the, at the base, of course with the authorities to arrest him, and a whole slew of reporters waiting to ask Larry a couple questions. These were the questions that they asked Larry. One, Larry, were you scared? <laughs> Yes, Larry replied. Two, Larry, would you do it again? No way, he said. <laughs> Third question, and this was sort of the, the, the kicker of it all. Larry, why did you do it? And he said, 
because a man can't sit around. <laughs> that was his answer. Because a man can't sit around. And um, when I think about that story, like, though the act in and of itself is kind of dumb, I love the spirit. Because a man can't sit around. And I think as we enter into the book of Mark, this is kind of the spirit of the book of Mark, that we can't just sit around that we need to do something. As we study the life of Christ, it's not something that we just sit around and read about. It's something that we actually make action with. We do something with. It's this book of action. So Mark 1, verse 1 says this. If you guys would turn with me in your Bibles, I'll wait for you to get there. Mark 1, verse 1. It says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. So I want you to notice the first part of this verse, the beginning. Because beginning, as it's stated here, is a really interesting word in the Greek. It's this word arche. Um, And this word arche, it literally means of the corners of a sail, is what this word means. And so the idea is that there's many places to begin a story, right? So think about the corners of a sail that exists on a sail. You can start at any corner of the sail, and eventually you're going to get to the other corner. So the Gospel of Mark is one of four Gospels that start off in the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of these sets a corner of the sail that will set the course, that we can set the course of our lives to. And so you can start the message of the Gospel from any one of those corners. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly known as the synoptic Gospels, and this just means to see together. And so the first three Gospels that exist in this series, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, are, are the synoptics. And so these gospels contain many of the same stories. And those stories are sometimes even presented in the same sequence within like each of the three different synoptic gospels. But each of these gospels present Jesus from differing perspectives with a different specific audience in mind. And so Matthew, for instance, shows us that, that it, it paints this picture of Jesus as the king of the Jews. And so Matthew's gospel was written to a a Jewish audience, specifically. Um, Then Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. And Luke's gospel was written written primarily to Greeks. John's gospel um, presents Jesus as the son of God. And it was written really to the world at large, to a whole group of a really diverse audience. And then Mark presents Jesus as the servant of man. And it was primarily written with a Roman audience in mind. And I want you to remember that as we get into the second part of this verse, that he's writing this book to specifically a Roman audience. And so I want you to look at the second part of this verse. It says, to the beginning, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This word in Greek, gospel, is this word euagelion, which means good news. And so these books reveal the good news about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. This word euangelion is where we get the term evangelize. It's where we get the word evangelist. Um, it, it means to, like the word evangelize uh, means to, or sorry, uh, evangelize and evangelist mean to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so an evangelist is a proclaimer of that news. To evangelize is to proclaim that good news. Tim Keller defines the gospel as this. He says, the gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew creation through the work 
and in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, which I think is a pretty succinct definition when we talk about the gospel. But the gospel, this word, this phrase, is really hard to boil down to a statement, which I think often we try to do. We say things like, what do you think the gospel is? What is the gospel? And we try to get it into three clear points or one little sentence, one clear statement. And I don't think it's that easy. Though we can try our best, um, it's not that easy. But this word gospel is full of tons of different religious and theological meanings throughout church history. And some of these meanings vary, and and you can see them expressed in phrases like, God loves you, Jesus died for you so that you don't have to go to hell. People say, justification by faith alone, and there's many other phrases that people will use that have different spatterings, different hintings of different versions of this gospel. And you'll also find some who think that the gospel is just the first four books of the New Testament. Like, when we talk about the gospel, it's just these four books. Like, that's it in and of itself. You'll also um, find people, um, or or sorry, and and while there there have been many times in church history when this English word gospel meant some of or perhaps all of these things that we just talked about, in order for us to understand what the word means when it comes to following Jesus, we actually need to understand the word in the context of that time period. Who was Mark writing this book to? Anybody remember? The Romans, right? He's writing to the Romans. And so when Jesus and the apostles used this word, euagelion, the good news of the gospel, they were using a non-religious word from their current culture, a phrase that they had heard. And it was an extremely political word at the time. Often it was even used in reference to an empire or a kingdom and and that empire or that kingdom's victories and how the power or order or riches of that specific empire or that kingdom, like all, everything that that kingdom brought with it was that kingdom's gospel. It was good news for those who were faithful or had an allegiance to that kingdom or that empire. There are many uses of this word that show this, but the most famous is that of what was called the Priene Inscription, which is this inscription by Alexander the Great, which was dated in 9 BC. And we put it like right in the context of the New Testament happenings in the writer's minds. This is what the inscription says. It says, since providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, and I want you to hear this, by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him, Augustus, as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, and since he, Caesar, and inherit from this Lord, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, the God Augustus, was the beginning of, and then it uses this word, good tidings, euangelion, for the world that came by reason of him, by way of Augustus. And so in this context of this inscription that dates back to 9 BC that is about Augustus and him being the king of his empire, him having his own gospel in and of himself, even him being referred to as the son of God, in this context then, this word euangelion was an announcement of a kingdom and its king or the Lord, its Lord. And so the writers of the New Testament seem to have this inscription in mind as they cast Jesus as God, as son of God, as it says in this verse. 
The beginning of the gospel of who? Not of Augustus. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who is who? The Son of God. It's making a very blatant statement when he uses this one clear phrase. And so they cast Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as Lord of all. And so this would all speak both politically and spiritually um, to this culture. It would be making a statement. And so in this context, to this Jewish audience that's hearing this, claiming that, that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah, this promised, anointed king of, of the Jews, and then demonstrating this, he did this by his miraculous birth, these miracles that he performed, his life, his death, his resurrection. This was probably the most important part of this good news, the gospel. But to those who were not Jews, claiming another gospel in and of itself was heresy. Like, you're telling us that Jesus is, is king? You're telling us that Jesus is ruler? Like, we've been told that Augustus is our Lord, that he is who we serve, that he is the Lord of the kingdom, that he is the son of God. And so claiming another gospel would have been, like, counter to the culture at this time. It would have been like an offense against the good news of Caesar, the gospel of Caesar. And so these four gospels, especially Mark, start off right there with this one line of thought, and then they establish it like in the rest of their accounts and their writings, and then it can be seen in the letters throughout the New Testament. For example, Paul starts the letter to the Romans off with this gospel announcement of Jesus as Savior, Messiah, anointed King of God's, of God's kingdom, Lord of all. Like th this would have been seen very much as an attack, not just in spiritual realms, but also on the Roman Empire and on Caesar as Lord. And so this is how crazy that Caesar Augustus was. He literally called himself the son of God. And when his father, Julius Caesar, died, he went around claiming that his father was God so that he could attach the phrase son of God to himself. This is how skewed this man was. This past week, we spent some time with a pastor, and we had about 10 churches in town come together with their staffs for this training, and we heard from this amazing guy named Steve Cuss, who wrote an awesome book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. But Steve was with us, and one of the statements that Steve made that really stuck out to me as he was talking was he, he said that the gospel always has a path, a promise, and a payment. And... When Augustus established the Pax Romana, anybody ever heard of the Pax Romana? The, the Peace of Rome in 31 BC, Augustus becomes the, the Roman emperor. And the Pax Romana became the gospel of Rome. The, the Pax Romana, again, means the peace of Rome. And so it, as the Pax Romana was established, the Pax Romana became a force in Jesus' day. Like everybody who was under the leadership of Rome was ascribing to this way. And so there was an economic, they were an economic powerhouse, they were a trade powerhouse, they had literally established industry and trade routes all throughout the Middle East so you could get goods and services everywhere as quickly as possible, it was like a highway system back in this time. And so the Pax Romana was just a powerhouse. But the Pax Romana, as Steve said, has a path, a promise, and a payment. And it's interesting, that the, the, so when you think about this, the promise that the Pax Romana made was peace. Why would we follow your leadership? Because you're promising us that peace will be had for us if we follow, if we ascribe to 
your ways. So the promise was peace. Worship Caesar, pay taxes to him, do everything required of you, and if you do all of these things, you will receive peace. The problem was in this time that many of the inhabitants didn't actually experience real peace because they were slaves to the Roman Empire in all facets of their life. They weren't actually experiencing the peace they were promised. They were slaves to this empire. And so the payment that this gospel required was your personal lives and your own well-being, right? You were the payment so that the upper echelon were able to experience peace and prosperity themselves, but you gave up your life to try to gain peace for yourself that you never would actually gain. Now, I say all of this to give you sort of a backdrop to this gospel terminology because the gospel writers were contrasting Jesus' life and ministry and message, the true gospel, with this other gospel that existed. And this is, again, what it's being contrasted against. So Jesus also provided a path, right? What was Jesus' path? It was discipleship. It was following Jesus. It was his way. It started with salvation. That was Jesus' clear path. What was Jesus' promise? Peace. Just like the Pax Romana were promising, but Jesus was offering a different sort of peace. The peace that Jesus offered was true shalom, is what, pe- what Jesus offered. It was peace with God, peace within yourself, and peace with others. That was the shalom of God. And so this peace relied on whose payment to receive that peace? Jesus' payment. Jesus paid the price so that we would experience peace. We didn't have to pay the price ourselves to try to gain peace for ourselves. Jesus paid that price for us. And so that's so much different than the gospel of the Pax Romana where you were the sacrifice for a peace that you would probably never experience for yourself and it's a false, weak, and life-sucking gospel that they were being offered. And so in light of this, in order to remember what the writers of the New Testament meant when they used the word euangelion, it would almost be best to translate euangelion in the New Testament as the good news or, or the announcement of Jesus as Savior, anointed King, and Lord of all. That's who he was. That was the good news. But I want you to think about this for a second, because this is what intrigues me, is we have gospels being presented to us today that have very similar promises, don't we? They're all over. They're all over. There's gospels all around us today in America that are promising you peace. They're promising you prosperity. They're promising you welfare. And the path looks vastly different than that of the way of Jesus. So the path is often pitched through hard work, it's pitched through success, it's pitched through hustle, it's pitched through passive income, it's pitched through acquiring stuff, it's pitched through higher education, it's, it's pitched through positions, and it's pitched through power, and, and it's really packaged in what we call the American dream. That if you have this, you will experience peace. And at the core of it, who's the payment for that dream? You are. Your families are. Your marriages are. You are the one that sacrifices for that dream, which doesn't actually sound like a path to peace, if you ask me. Your well-being becomes the payment. And this is why we live in a stressed out, anxious depressed culture because we can't keep up with the gospel that this world is pitching us because it's false 
And so we're always feeling like we're striving and trying to keep up, and we're laying our lives down for this gospel, but this gospel isn't giving us what it is that we're desiring or thinking that it's going to. And so I'm excited to work through the book of Mark, even in the midst of like a highly politicized year before us. We're entering into some sketchy times. Because we will hear tons of gospels come through in political rants and campaigns in the next 12 months. You will be presented various gospels, forms of good news. The media will present you those things. And this is why the kingdom of God message that's proclaimed in the book of Mark will be important for us to understand as followers of Jesus. It's important for us to grasp it because no political evangelist No economic evangelist, no life coach will be able to provide a path and fulfill the promise without you sacrificing yourself for it and losing yourself in the midst of it because Jesus is the only way to peace and his kingdom is the only kingdom to which you owe any allegiance to. That will not be the message that you hear in the next 12 months. So, little high horse, get back to some background stuff on the book of Mark. Um, it's universally, universally accepted that John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. We know him as Mark, but that's actually his surname. So his name was John. We find a lot of detail about his life and his ministry in the book of Acts. If you go through, read through the book of Acts, several New Testament epistles even refer to him. We know he was the cousin of Barnabas. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas on his first missionary journey. During that missionary trip, John Mark left Paul and Barnabas and he returns to Jerusalem. And having left them in the midst of this first journey, Paul refuses to allow John Mark to come with them on the second journey. And this causes this major disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and they decide to go in different directions. So Barnabas takes John Mark with him and they go to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and they go off. And Paul and Mark were later reconciled, they came back together. And Paul later speaks of Mark as being profitable to the ministry of the gospel and as a fellow laborer in Christ. Um, the, the early church fathers recognized Mark as a companion of Peter's. Some commentators claim that Peter gave much of the material for the gospel of Mark to Mark, whereas others say that Mark made notes of Peter's preaching and later used those notes to write the gospel himself because Mark was not present. He, was not, um, he didn't witness the life of Christ himself, so he was hearing it all from others. Uh, Papias says that Mark, who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down carefully all that he remembered of what Christ had said or done, though not in order. For he had neither heard the Lord nor been his disciple, but afterwards, as I said, he had been Peter's disciple. And so while Mark didn't walk with the Lord and was not an eyewitness to Christ's life, His writings were inspired by the Spirit, and they proved to be consistent with the other gospel books. And it's believed that Mark wrote this gospel account between 67 and 70 AD. Um, So the fall of Jerusalem happens in AD 70, and it appears that it was probably written prior to this. But as we've discussed, Mark's gospel is written with with a Roman audience in mind, specifically. So his desire was to reveal the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. And it's apparent that he was writing to those who were unfamiliar with Jewish terms, they were unfamiliar with Jewish customs, with the laws, because he's continually explaining those things to the reader as we work our way through the book of Mark. So the theme of the book of Mark is this, Jesus is the servant of God with authority and power. 
Mark emphasized the servanthood of Christ as he lived his life and he ministers among people and he shows Jesus as possessing complete authority, complete power over mankind and all of creation. And he describes the humanity of Christ as he walks upon the earth. And while Mark emphasizes the role of Jesus as a servant among men, he also declares his deity, that he's actually the son of God. And this is affirmed in the opening statement of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he says, the Son of God. So God the Father affirmed Jesus' deity at his baptism, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. The demons declare him as the Holy One of God in Mark 1, 24. The centurion admitted Jesus was truly the Son of God as he stands at the foot of the cross in Mark 15, 39. And probably the key verse to this book, and I'm gonna do something weird and just ask you guys, to write down this verse and memorize it, if you haven't already. But the key verse for this book is Mark 10, 45. It says this, some of you might already have it memorized. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a really good verse for us, for us to recognize, to memorize. And it also seems as though Mark had this audience in mind that lived outside of Israel, that were not accustomed to the Jewish way of life. So he writes, those, uh, he writes to those who would not have witnessed the life and the ministry of Jesus. The gospel can be looked at from several vantage points, and you can write these down if you want. But one, there's a tangible gospel, right? Mark focuses more on the actions and the life of Jesus than the words that he spoke. There's not a ton of red letters in the book of Mark like there are in some of the other gospels but he deals with the facts of Jesus' daily life and encounters that Jesus had and very little interpretation that he gives us. Second, it's a gospel that portrays action, going back to what I said originally, that this narrative within Mark's gospel moves quickly from one account of Jesus' life and ministry to another without any interruptions. He's constantly moving and it paints this really vivid sort of day-to-day -day account of Jesus' life. And it's interesting because this sort of fast-paced sequence of Jesus' life can be seen through the frequent use of a word that we'll see in this book that will appear over 40 times, but in the Greek it's this word, eutheos. And this word means straightway, immediately, or, or straightly. And so he uses this word a bunch. And so his gospel moves really rapidly through the life of Jesus, and then it ultimately it climaxes at the point of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. Thirdly, it's a gospel that portrays Jesus' humanity, and I think that's really important for us. Because as Jesus is portrayed as the servant of men, his humanity is obvious. It becomes very obvious to us. Jesus is a carpenter, it says. That he, he, he was moved by righteous anger in Mark 3, Mark 8, Mark 10. That Jesus became weary in Mark 4. That he marveled at the people's unbelief in Mark 6. That he became tired and needed rest in Mark 6. That he was moved with compassion in Mark 6. That he sighed, Mark 7 and Mark 8. That he looked and loved the rich, the rich young ruler in Mark 10. That he hungered in Mark 11. Like there's all these references to Jesus' humanity. And so as believers, we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But this is really a fundamental piece of Christ's character that we have to embrace in order to receive salvation from Jesus. Because it, it appeals to our humanity, like knowing that we serve a God who experienced life as we do, that felt the same emotions that you and I do, that dealt with the same struggles that you and I do. Like his humanity should bolster our dependence and our devotion to him. The fact that he was 
human, but he remained sinless. This is why this is the God that we should serve. He knows where you're at today. He knows what you're experiencing. He's faced every temptation that you have in his life. He is Lord and Savior. And I'm honestly so excited to spend the next year in this book because some of the stories for you guys will be familiar. It's stories that you've heard before. But some of it, I think, will serve to deepen our understanding of God's word, of Jesus' life. I think it'll renew our passion for the God we serve, which has been my prayer for this year, of renewal for our church. That's why we're doing this two weeks of prayer and fasting, that there would be renewal. We're seeking the Lord for this, that he would renew our hearts and our minds. Like, we desperately need this in this day. And as we move through these passages, verse by verse, I encourage you to keep that key verse in mind. For even the Son of Man came to be, not to be ministered to, but to minister and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came with this purpose, to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for you. He came to purchase our redemption. He came to secure you and I's salvation. And he's the source of life and the source of strength and hope for all who believe. And so I highly encourage you guys through this series to be reading through the book of Mark in your own time. And as we move through this series, we'll have Sundays where we answer questions. I wanna have Sundays where we do group discussions, Sundays where we do group prayer time together, Sundays where we memorize passages, Sundays where we challenge each other to action, that we take what we read and begin to ask the question, what does it look like for us to live in this way that we're reading about? For us to move beyond being a people that want our minds to be filled with information and sit on information and to be a people that want our hearts to be changed our minds to be renewed and us to be moved to action and to be a people that desire for us to be, again, transformed as Jesus sets forth his way for us in his word. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and I thought we'd kind of end differently this morning. Um, Turn with me in your Bibles to the very end of Mark 16, chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. And I think it's interesting that Mark starts the book one way and ends it the same. But he adds to it. He says this in verse 16. Go into all the world and proclaim the what? The gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Listen to this, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. Anybody seen any of those Instagram videos as of late of preachers in the Midwest um, handling serpents on a Sunday morning? I'm not encouraging us to try this. Um, It's so sketchy. Uh, And then, He says, and if they drink any deadly poison, which I'm also not encouraging you to do, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And as I was reading through this this week, um, I was recognizing the fact that there are some in our midst right now who are really sick. Um, And in fact, uh, where's Tyler at? Tyler, I wanna pray for you this morning. Um, 
Tyler was recently diagnosed with cancer, and Tyler has an appointment this week, and I want to pray for you. And as I was reading through this passage this week, I thought, what an opportunity for us to practice what we read. I mean, what does it say? They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We know that God is sovereign, and he knows the way, but may we not be a church that restrains ourselves from actually praying for those that need prayer. And so I wanna end like this, um, if that's okay. Uh, I wanna ask Tyler to come forward. I wanna ask anybody else in this room, if you're sick, there's something going on right now in your body, in your mind, would you be bold enough to come forward? And can we as a church practice what we read and pray for those who need prayer this morning? So. I know Tyler's not the only one, so anybody else want prayer this morning? Interesting. <laughs> All right. Why don't you stand with me? And if you want to come forward and lay hands on Tyler, feel free to do so. Jesus, I wanna thank you for your life. And I thank you, Jesus, that these books, these words were not written for us to just be a people that read them and do nothing with them, um, but to begin to practice your way. And uh, Jesus, I just thank you for my brother Tyler. God, I know he's going through a lot. I know he's been through a lot. But I also know that your spirit is with him. I know that you see him, God. You see every fear. You see his worries and the anxiety. I know his wife, Devin, feels this just as heavy as he does, and his kids feel it. Their home senses it. Um, Jesus, we're not praying for a fake peace like the Pax Romana might offer. We're praying for the true shalom of the living God to exist with Tyler and Devin and in their home. I'm praying in this time, God, that you draw near to them, that they would sense your nearness, your closeness like never before in their life. And Jesus, we're praying a bold prayer that you would heal, that you would recover, that you would restore, that you would be with our friend. We thank you for him, Jesus. Lord, I know the enemy wants nothing less than to allow his mind to spin out and think of all the what ifs, God, and to get caught up in that and even at times probably get frustrated with why is he in this place that he is. But I pray, Jesus, that in every thought that you would help him to take those thoughts captive, that your spirit would show up in those moments or remind Tyler of who you are and the power that you have and the moments in his life that you've stood with him, that he's seen you move, that he knows that you're real, that he knows that you're a God that... Um, does not exist to just pray to, but a God that actually stepped down into this world with us, that cares deeply about us. And I pray for him, Jesus, that you bless him, be with him, may he prosper. Jesus, may your peace 
rest upon him. And I'm even asking God as he enters into these meetings throughout this week, as he enters into conversations with friends and family members, may the peace of God not just be something that rests in him, but something that moves through him. May Tyler be an encouragement to those around him. May the gospel of Jesus be proclaimed in every meeting, every um, gathering that he steps into in his workplace, in his home. We, we pray the gospel, the good news of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection would just be oozing through Tyler's pores. And Jesus, ultimately we pray for your salvation to come to all those that would call upon your name. And we love you, Jesus. We thank you for our brother. May your joy abound in his life like no other time before. May it be so uncanny that he would sense your peace and your joy right now in the midst of a season where he has every right not to. But Jesus, may your spirit come in power and work in him and through him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to reach out to us or see what we currently have going on as a church, head to anthemcda.com or find us on social media at anthemcda. We can't wait to see you next week.